Volume 2, Chapter 12 of Evelyn, or A Heart Unmasked, a novel by Anna Cora Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 12 Time, as he courses onward, still unrolls the volume of concealment. In the future, as in the optician's glassy cylinder, the undistinguishable blots and colors of the dim past collect and shape themselves, upstarting in their own completed image, to scare or to reward. Coleridge From Catherine to Elizabeth, March 10th Night and day for the past week have Ellen and I by turns taken our station beside Evelyn's couch, unwearily performed all those tender offices which loving solicitude could suggest. She lies prostrated by fever, which at time abates and again increases in violence. She takes no cognizance of the outer world, and Ellen's eager desire to be known and embraced by her cherished sister has not yet been gratified. Several casual remarks made by Dr. Wesley have convinced me that he feels a deep interest in his unknown patient, and that all the skill which he possesses will be exerted to save her, and I, in how responsible a situation am I placed? Perhaps it is that very responsibility which makes my chagrin at Evelyn's danger less acute than it would be otherwise. My anxiety is intense, while my mind is clearer and my energy greater than ever. Sometimes I am half inclined to inform her family of her existence and her peril, but a vague dread withholds me. Alas, how long will she remain thus, daily becoming feebler and less able to struggle with disease, daily fading away before our sight? It may be that the fever will only depart from her as death, approaching, lays his hand upon her brow. Since my thoughts have ever been so continually occupied with Evelyn, my vigilance over Blanche has necessarily been relaxed. I have not latterly exerted that controlling and subduing influence over her by which one mind can force another into willing submission. She has also had opportunities of leaving the house unattended, and I to-day discovered that she has more than once taken advantage of this suspended surveillance. On returning home this afternoon from Nancy's dwelling, I accidentally inquired, Where is Blanche? I think she has gone out, answered Netta. I have not seen her for a couple of hours. Gone out without my permission or knowledge? You may suppose that this intelligence alarmed me. I instantly, but uselessly, sought her in every room of the house. I was momentarily growing terrified when, passing through the entry, I thought I heard a low moaning. I looked again into the parlour and into the schoolroom, but the sound did not proceed thence. I opened the door leading into the garden and beheld Blanche, seated upon the steps. 
with her hat and shawl beside her, and her head resting upon her knees. The moans had issued from her lips, and her fingers were twined in her loose black hair, as though their nervous motion could relieve the burning of her brain. At my approach, she ceased her plaintive wailing, and, springing to her feet, attempted to rush by me into the house. With a firm grasp, I caught her by the wrist, and, encircling her waist with my arm, forcibly led her into the schoolroom. "'Where have you been, Blanche?' said I, seating myself, but still retaining my hold of her hand. She threw herself upon the floor, and, leaning her head upon my knees, only answered with her tears. I smoothed back her loose hair with the caressing motion which we would use towards a child, and said, Blanche, will you not speak to me? Do not, do not ask me where. I do not know where. I do not know how I came there. To love him, to love him still, is that not dreadful, unnatural? He has betrayed me, yet I love him. He has ruined me, yet I would be his slave. I am bound to him by a tie, an unholy tie, which all the fiends of hell cannot sever. When I was a child, somebody told me that men could sell their souls to the devil, who had thenceforth all power over them, and he is the demon, who with his false love has purchased my soul. I have sold myself to him. I cannot extricate my spirit from his iron grasp. I am his. I love him. I thought that I hated, but no, I love him. Unnatural and depraved, I love my father's murderer. Try to be calm, Blanche, that I may talk to you. Calm? My brain is on fire again. I have seen him, seen him, and by his side, on his arm. I knew she was his victim by his soft look. It was that look which went to my heart. But no, he shall not blast her existence too. He shall not poison her spirit with the thrilling words that set me mad. I will save her. Must I not keep my oath, the vow I made to my murdered father? I had almost forgotten it. What would you do, Blanche? I ask in accents of horror. Give your purpose deed a name that you may reflect upon its enormity. Would you commit homicide? Would you murder? Hush! Do not speak that dreadful word. But I must do it if justice places the steel in my hand. If my father cries out to me from his tomb to strike, if by the blow I shall save her from being what I am. Listen to me, dear Blanche. Retribution belongs to heaven, and not to mortals. Justice never demands vengeance from our hands. It is your disordered imagination that makes you fancy that you hear your father's voice. 
Think you that he, knowing your wretchedness in this life, would seek to render your state more dreadful hereafter by bidding you to commit so horrible a crime? But think of her. Shall he break her heart as he broke mine, and shall I not stretch out my feeble hand to save her? You may be mistaken in your fears, but if not, would that authorize your becoming a murderess? But I am sure, I am very sure, that you are mistaken. Ah, tell me that again. Tell me that he does not love another. I could forgive him. I could lie down and die at his feet if he only loved me still. I could not live and know that he loved another, that he breathed into her ear the thrilling words that he poured into mine. It was that thought that maddened me again. I am very sure that your suspicions are groundless, repeated I, and the poor creature's gratitude could not find expression in words. When I beheld her thus softened, I thought that this was a favourable moment to extract from her a vow which would perhaps make her forget her former one. I lifted the little Bible from my desk where it usually lay, and, taking her hand, placed it solemnly upon the sacred book. Blanche, I ask one token of gratitude and of love from you. With your hand upon this holy book, Promise me that you will never attempt the life of, of the one who so deeply wronged you. Blanche looked up, her features beaming with grateful tenderness, and uttered the words, I promise. A mountain seemed removed from my heart, and tears of joy flowed fast upon the book which I clasped between my hands as a pledge that his life was secure. Blanche aroused me by saying, You weep too, and I love you for weeping. Well, what can I do but weep? Two vows. I have made two vows, one to my father and one to you. I must not take his life. No, no, I should not have had courage. I should have thrown my arms around him and placed the dagger in his hand and bade him finish his work and kill me. I never could have harmed him. Yet my vow to my father, revenge. I must be revenged, not to kill him, yet be revenged and save her. Oh, what a frightful thought shoots through my brain. He shall lose the power to charm and to betray. Before I could reply, Mrs. Willard, attracted by our voices, entered the room. Blanche, who instinctively shuns her presence, instantly stole away, and as soon as I had succeeded in evading rather than answering Mrs. Willard's questions, I also withdrew. I felt certain I could trust Netta, and summoned her to my chamber. After some prefacing remarks, I cautiously told her that I feared Blanche was not at all sometimes in her right mind, and that I depended upon her, Netta, to see that Blanche did no injury to herself, and to be particularly watchful in preventing her from leaving the house alone. Netta was flattered by the confidence which I reposed in her, 
and promised implicitly to obey my orders. She has intelligence beyond her years, and relying upon her fidelity, I shall henceforth feel more at ease in absenting myself from home. March 11th A note from Ellen brought to me by Billy. My hand is almost too tremulous to impart to you its contents. The hour when Evelyn's fate will be decided has arrived. Anxiously as I have longed for this moment, I now shrink back and would fain have the time postponed. Ellen, in her notes, bids me hasten to her. She has just been informed by Dr. Wesley that the crisis is at hand. During the past night, Evelyn grew much worse. She has now sunk into a deep sleep, and upon her awakening, so the doctor has declared, her intelligence will be restored, and we may once more clasp her to our hearts and call her ours, or she will instantly pass to that happier land where Lilla has gone before her. We should, we must, submit to the decree of heaven. If she is summoned away, duty forbids us to murmur at God's mandate, but oh, how difficult it is to bend and say, Thy will be done. I cannot force my stubborn lips to utter any sound, but spare her, spare her to us. All my self-possession has vanished. My quietude has passed away. I am unnerved. I hold up my hands supplicatingly, and dare not meet the stroke. Evelyn, in the meridian bloom of her beauty, at the height of her uninterrupted joyousness, rises before me. I see her innocent face as it looked when the folds of the bridal veil fell around it. I see it in its superb beauty, when she personated Gulliner in the tableau, again in the calm purity which rendered loveliness more lovely as she lay upon her couch, with the newborn infant clasped in her twining arms. I behold that same fair countenance as it now appears, worn, emaciated, with the burning glow of fever on the cheeks, and the fearful light of insanity in the still brilliant eyes, and then, ah, oh, then, methinks I gaze upon it as it lies within the coffin's narrow bounds, whiter than the encircling shroud, colder than our paralyzed hearts. God grant that she may live, live to learn something more of his mercy, of his goodness, of those holy and spiritualizing truths to which the noonday of happiness she had not time to give a thought. Night, March 12th. I can find no relief for my overfraught heart but in my pen. Oh, Elizabeth! Through what terrible scenes I have passed since I traced the last lines which darkened this sheet. I have been oppressed by a midday nightmare. Would that I had only dreamed that I could awake and say, Thank God, it is but a dream. But I will not anticipate. I will pass again and quietly through the scenes which have just wrung my heart that you may calmly follow me. Yesterday was Friday, and on receiving Ellen's note, which reached me at about ten o'clock in the morning, 
I instantly dismissed my pupils at the risk of displeasing their parents. Before I joined Ellen, I wrote a few lines to you as much to compose my mind as for any other reason. I was a little calmer when I laid by my pen, and before I passed Nancy's threshold, I had schooled my heart into a tolerable degree of resignation. When I entered the humble dwelling, Ellen was sitting in her usual seat near her sister. Johnny, Nancy's youngest child, lay upon her knees. She had just hushed the noisy little urchin to sleep, for fear that the sound of his merry shouts might disturb the dearer slumberer. The hectic hue on Evelyn's cheek had almost entirely faded away, and those cheeks looked more sunken in their parlour. Her silken curls clung in matted masses to her damp forehead, and a cold moisture bedewed the hands clasped above her head. Her breath came regularly, but very slowly, between her parted lips, and a peaceful smile rested upon that once roseate mouth. Ellen's eyes were red and swollen, but their expression, as they met mine, betokened an unwavering hopefulness. We neither spoke. But the mutual pressure of our hands, as we sat side by side, said more than words. In about a half an hour, during which Evelyn remained in the same position, I rose gently and retired to Nancy's apartment. Ellen made me a signal to carry the child with me, and placed it in my arms. Luckily, the little fellow did not wake, and I had the gratification of laying him with sealed lips upon his mother's bed. I was stopping over the fire, preparing some bread jelly, a most nutritious restorative, which Evelyn might possibly need when she awoke. Nancy was engaged in washing the kitchen utensils outside of the door. As I was in the act of removing the jelly from the fire, Ellen approached me on tiptoe. "'Come in,' whispered she. "'She has turned on her side. I think she is waking.' We re-entered the small, close chamber together. In almost breathless silence we stood beside the bed. Evelyn's fingers moved uneasily. The little slipper, which she had not relinquished throughout her illness, fell from her hands. The faintest peach-blossom hue tinted her cheek. Her breath grew less even. She sighed gently and slowly opened her eyes. Intelligence, hope, tenderness beamed from those clear blue orbs as they languidly gazed around the room and then rested upon Ellen's face and mine. With a sudden effort, Evelyn raised herself in the bed and extended her arms towards us, exclaiming in a faint but thrilling voice, Sister, Miss Catherine, oh, is it you? Is it you? An irrepressible cry of joy burst from Ellen's lips as she threw herself forward to meet her sister's offered embrace, but Evelyn was seized with a cold tremor, her brow contracted as though some frightful thought were shooting through her brain. She shudderingly evaded Ellen's caress and buried her face in the pillow. Thank God! God in heaven be thanked! She will recover! The crisis is past! ejaculated Ellen. You are restored to us, dear, dear Evelyn! Loved sister, thank God! 
she attempted to encircle her sister's neck with her arms, but Evelyn pushed her away and said in a tone full of anguish, Do not touch me. Do not call me sister. I am nothing to you now. No kiss, no word of love, no hope. There is none, none left for me. Ellen was mute from horror, but my strength had returned. I bent over the sorrowing Evelyn and said, You recognize us, Evelyn, do you not? It is Ellen and your friend whom you once loved. You can never be otherwise than dear to us. You do not know, you do not know what I am, she ejaculated in a broken voice. You would shrink from me. You would not breathe the same air. The very atmosphere I breathe is polluted. Do not come near me. You are innocent, and I, great God, I was innocent once. Ellen grew so pale as these words struck her ear that I feared she would faint. I touched her arm and whispered, If you love her, calm yourself. Her life may be risk if you show any emotion. I conjure you to be calm or to leave us. Then, turning to Evelyn, I said, What you were and what you may now be cannot alter what you are and always must be to us, beloved Evelyn. We will mourn with you and pray for you, but never, never forsake you. Miss Catherine, Miss Catherine, was all she could utter, but her arms were about my neck and her head upon my bosom, and my tears mingled with those that streamed from her eyes as she again and again returned the kisses which I imprinted upon her lips. Ellen stood beside us, like one deprived of sense and feeling by some sudden shock. Her dreams for the future were dispelled, her hopes were dashed to the ground, yet the cause of this sickening dread was undefined. She was appalled, yet scarcely knew why. I made her a sign to embrace her sister. She obeyed me almost mechanically. You too, Ellen, you too forgive me though in the wide world you and Carissima only can ever pardon, if galling tears, if hours of misery, of unutterable misery, if remorse more poignant than the pangs of a torturing death, if ceaseless prayers and unremitting agony could wipe away that foul stain, my soul would be purified. And it will be, Evelyn, when rationality returns was restored health, and your life proves that your penitence is sincere. But you have not heard all that I can tell you. You cannot know how culpable, how lost I am. But do not judge me until you hear all, and you, Ellen, with what mournful eyes you look upon me. But you do not turn away. You will not spurn me when you know the worst. You will never forsake me. At least I shall have you left in this world. I shall not be quite alone in my wretchedness. To us, you will ever be the same to us. Ellen's voice trembled as she spoke these words, and they were evidently pronounced with much difficulty. You must be composed, Evelyn, said I. 
A relapse might be fatal, and this excessive excitement will produce bad consequences. I have some nourishment prepared for you, and you must speak no more until you have been refreshed. Ah, oh, you are so kind, but I cannot eat. I need no food, and I cannot rest until I have told you everything, for then, perhaps, perhaps you will loathe me too much to let this dear hand lie in mine as it now does. Well, you may, I loathe myself. I grow frenzied because I could not fly from my own thoughts. Memory tortured me until I would have died to escape those fearful recollections. But I felt that they were branded upon my soul, and I should eternally carry them with me. But hear me now, for I must tell you all. Not until you are stronger, Evelyn, said I, placing my finger upon her lips. When you have eaten, then we will listen to you. Nay, not a word. You must yield. And she did yield without a remonstrance. I laid her head again upon the pillow, which Ellen kindly smoothed, and leaving the sisters together for a few moments, returned to Nancy's room for the jelly. It was quickly prepared, and Ellen supported her sister while I placed the spoon to her lips, replenishing it as often as it was emptied. When she had swallowed a few spoonful of the jelly, she shook her head and refused to receive more. "'Can you not sleep now?' I inquired. "'No, no, not now. Not until my mind is unburthened. Yes, Ellen, raise me up higher. Support me. It is so sweet to be supported in your dear arms. How long, how long it is since they have twined about me. And you, Carissima, let me hold your hand.' And if you can help it, do not draw it away until I have done. But no, turn your eyes from me. I shall not have the courage to speak if you look at me with such pitying glances. We complied with her request, and she commenced the sad story which I shall now relate to you. That mournful recital is so indelibly pressed upon my memory that I have not forgotten one word and her musical but touching tone is even now sounding in my ears. Carissima, she began, you remember that dreadful day when Laura sent for me at Mr. Fleecer's, and I met you as I was escaping her presence. I bowed my head in token that the day to which she alluded was not forgotten. In that interview, Laura accused me, how shall I tell you, she said that all the world knew it. She reproached me with She accused me of... Evelyn was unable to proceed. Tears of agony choked her utterance. I overheard that conversation, said I, with assumed calmness. She accused you of loving Colonel Damero, did she not? Evelyn assented by sign, for agitation was so excessive that it was some moments before she could continue her narration. And I, I could not deny, she sobbed out at length, let me speak truly, that I loved, worshipped, had given up my whole soul to him. Her fatal questions made me for the first time vow to myself that I did love him, beyond any other human being, beyond virtue, honor, the hope of heaven, even better than my child. Lilla, my lost Lilla. 
I had long, but without ever analyzing my own heart or analyzing my emotions, struggled with this passion. For Colonel Damoreau gained an ascendancy over me the very first moment I beheld him. I felt myself irresistibly attracted towards him, irresistibly bowed before him. It seemed to me as though I were a creature of his will, as though I lost my very identity in his. I earnestly and in desperation and sickness of heart warred against this uncomprehended feeling. I closed my ears to his moving voice. I shunned his dangerous presence. But the mysterious power he exerted over me was too mighty. I had not strength to resist. I listened to him again. I found no happiness except in his presence. I seemed to myself like a defenseless child battling with a giant. When I conversed with you, Carissima, then only was I inspired with superior energy and courage. It appeared as though you flung an armor of purity about me, and for a while I was calmer, happier, for I could withstand the tempter's fearful lures. Lilla was born, and love for her superseded all other affections. I thought I was saved, but I saw him again. My devotion for the child found a sympathizing echo in his breast. Then you left me, and Laura... Oh, I cannot say how it was, but when I talked with Laura, my whole nature was changed. I was a slave to passion, and I believe that an unalterable destiny forced us to yield to the strongest dictates of our heart. I was most wretched. I enjoyed none of the comforts at home. I found a thousand faults in Walter. I reproached myself, my parents, all of you for having permitted me to become his wife. I still adored his child and mine, but sometimes I was even wicked enough to think that I could not have loved it had it not been dear to Hubert, to Colonel Damoreau. You returned, and I shrank from your scrutinizing gaze, but I did not yet acknowledge to myself my own guilt. Let me hurry on. I cannot dwell upon the conflicting emotions which warred together in my heart when you conversed with me. I might have listened to your voice, but Laurel was ever by my side. The evil genius swayed my spirit and drowned the heaven-breathing tones of the good. Walter mistrusted me and grew cold. And I began at once to fear and brave him, while a growing repugnance to his society rooted itself in my heart. When Laura's note reached me upon that dreadful day, Walter had just accused me of an unwifely demeanor, and though my conscience at the very moment rebuked me, I angrily retorted. I obeyed Laura's summons. You heard her dreadful words. She told me that I was a criminal in the eyes of the world, and, oh heaven, she made me conscious how criminal I must be in the eyes of God. My reproachful heart cried out that she spoke the truth and I left her with the half-formed determination of committing suicide to escape from the horrors of my situation. You encountered me as I was rushing from the house, but I broke away from your embrace. In the street, I did not know which way to turn. I had hardly reason enough left to guide my steps, and then, then... You returned home, did you not, 
inquired I, observing that she was unable to conclude her sentence. Not yet, not yet. Oh, that I had. The first person whom I met was Colonel Damoreau. Alas, if we had not met at that dreadful moment, perhaps, perhaps I might not be what I now am. He joined me. He saw my agitation. He entreated me to tell him the cause. I could not speak. My head swam. I hardly knew where I was, yet I remembered that I clung to his arm. But when he tenderly pressed mine, I started from him, and might have fled. A warning voice whispered me that now was the fatal moment, the moment of imminent peril and of trial, that now, if I conquered, I would henceforth be free from the galling yoke which I was madly fastening about my own neck. He pursued me, and my steps faltered. We were again walking side by side. I cannot tell you, I cannot make you conceive with how much tenderness he soothed and reanimated me. I had grown feeble, and he offered his arm to support me and guide my uncertain steps. I accepted it, and then, then for the first time, he avowed his passion, his words, his dangerous looks, his more dangerous tone. I can give you no adequate idea of them. All power had passed away from me. My very physical faculties were prostrated, and I fainted in his arms. When consciousness returned, I was lying upon a sofa in a small chamber adjoining a confectioner's. My head rested upon Colonel Damoreau's bosom. His arms were around me. I could not move. I felt that henceforth I was his. A young woman was standing beside us with a glass of water in her hand. He seized it, placed it to my lips, and then motioned her to withdraw. I trembled in every limb yet I did not move from the position in which I lay, and I felt rather than saw his eyes upon me. Oh, Carissima, have you ever felt the gaze of one you loved? Is it not an appalling sensation? At last I started up and said, Let me go, let me go home. He did not attempt to detain me, but respectfully rose and said, You are very weak. Had you not better rest upon this sofa until you regain your strength? I fear that you are unable to walk. He spoke truly. I was too feeble to hold myself erect, and sank powerless into a chair which was standing near. He placed himself beside me. He conversed with me long and earnestly. Can you believe that I was shameless enough to repeat to him my conversation with Laura Hilson? And he... I can hardly call to mind what happened. It was all so confused, so like a terrible dream. But he conjured me to fly with him from the home which was no longer dear, and in the most glowing and eloquent language pictured to me our future life. I must return home. Let me go. I must see my child, was all that I could reply. Not until you promise that you will meet me afterwards at Gramercy Park he answered. Do not spurn me. Do not hate me for it. For I was beside myself and knew not what I did. 
I promised. Almost in silence, he conducted me home, but hidden his looks and the mute pressure of his arm in which mine was linked, spoke more than words. We parted at our door. I will wait for you at the park. Will you come? said he. I could not reply, but the expression of my face contented him. The door opened, and I entered the house. I flew to the nursery. I found Lilla asleep in her cradle. I dismissed the nurse from the room, and kneeling down beside the slumbering innocent, I tried to utter a prayer, but it died away upon my lips. The child had never looked so beautiful, had never been so inexpressibly dear to me, yet a mysterious power which had gained dominion over every act and thought forced me, in spite of myself, to resign her. I lifted the sweet babe in my arms and almost blistered her delicate face with my burning kisses. I knew, I was quite certain that those kisses were the last I should ever press upon her living brow. She woke, and I lulled her to sleep again and replaced her in the cradle. When I rose up, you were standing beside me, Ellen. In the most afflicting anguish of mine, I wandered about the room without regarding you. One of Lilla's slippers was lying upon the bureau. I snatched it up. Oh, what have you done with it? Where is it now? As she spoke, she looked anxiously about her for the slipper. It was lying upon the bed quilt. She clasped it in her hands and continued. I took the slipper. It was most precious to me, for it was something of Lilla, and I could bear it away with me. I have worn it in my bosom ever since, worn it upon that breast, which was so unworthy to cradle the angel God had given me. I then passed into your room, Ellen. I would fain have stolen away some remembrancer of you, but you followed me, and the book that I had seized was returned to its place again. I left yours, and I entered my own chamber. You still accompanied me, and do you remember? No. You have not forgotten our embrace? That dear embrace almost shook my purpose, but I had taken first fatal steps in the descent from virtue, and could not pause in my impetuous course. You left me at my own request, and once alone I became reckless again. I waited until I thought that you were busied in writing, and then stole from my chamber and from the house, that once happy dwelling, which was to be my home no more. Evelyn paused and gazed with sorrowful eyes around the wretched room in which she was now lying, and a tear glistened upon her wasted cheek, but her calmness surprised me. Ellen and I had listened with breathless attention to her recital, and it was a relief to us that here, at the most dreadful portion, her silence gave us an opportunity of recovering ourselves. For some time Evelyn seemed lost in thought, but the light pressure of my hand disturbed her. Yes, yes, I will hurry on. Have patience, for it is very horrible. What was I telling you? Where was I? Now I remember. I stole from the house. I took nothing with me, no clothing, no jewels, nothing. They were Walter's wife's, and I had forfeited that name, guided by some invisible hand, for I think... I had never been there before. I hurried to the park. 
Colonel Damereau was waiting me, and a carriage stood near. I stopped when I saw him. My limbs refused to bear me on. With a joyful countenance, he approached me. I did not even notice him by a look. I could not. I was wholly powerless. In the most tender language, he accosted me. I still continued speechless and motionless. There was nobody near. He lifted me, unresisting, in his arms and carried me to the carriage. When I recovered the use of my faculties, I found myself driven along at a rapid rate. His arm encircled my waist, and my head reposed upon his shoulder. You shudder, Ellen. So did I. So do I now. But too late. Too late. I was born to the most magnificent abode. I was surrounded by a species of luxuriously tasteful elegance, such as the imagination might picture when we rise from the perusal of the Arabian Nights. My apartments resembled the halls of an enchanted palace, and the presiding genius of every hour essayed to charm my eyes and ears with some new wonder. But Lilla's small slipper still lay upon my breast, and seemed, in spite of these entrancing sounds and sights, to cut like a sharp instrument into my very heart. All my wants were supplied as if by magic. Though I had not brought a change of garment with me, on the second day after my departure from home, I found myself the mistress of the most tasteful, complete, and elegant wardrobe imaginable. How it had been provided so speedily, I could not divine. Colonel Damoreau often absented himself for hours, but during my solitude my ears were constantly enraptured by delightful strains of music, which proceeded from invisible minstrels. Portfolios of the choicest engravings were spread before me, and books, romances of the most pernicious character, were always at hand. I abandoned myself to the wildest excitement, for thus only could I banish thought. But happy, no, not for one fleeting moment, was I happy. Even in the midst of my mad enjoyment, I realized that that word could never more be applied to me. The melodious strains jarred harshly upon my ears, for my heart was out of tune. My eyes were too often dimmed with tears, which never flowed, to delight in the most beautiful works of art. I could not read. The page before me was ever darkened with the relation of my own frightful history. Even Colonel Damoreau's fascinations, when most powerfully exerted, most torturingly increased my internal anguish. I could not fix my eyes upon his countenance without a pang. I could not hear his seductive voice without shuddering. My smothered sighs alone replied to his words of endearment. And when he one evening attired himself in his pirate costume and threw himself at my feet, I lost the recollection of my guilt and my agony in insensibility. Yet I loved him. I had never loved before. But no. You, Miss Catherine, would not desecrate the name by calling a passion so unholy love. At the end of a fortnight, I had one night of fearful dream. I shall never forget it. I thought that I beheld Walter sitting beside Lilla's coffin. 
he was woefully changed, and the unutterable wretchedness delineated upon his countenance sent a chill of horror to my soul. While I gazed, a rebuking voice, which sounded like yours, Catherine, whispered in my ear, Behold thy work. I awoke, but the vision haunted me, and I dared not close my eyes to sleep again. End of chapter 12, part 1